Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, uh, my partner in crime, Caleb Weiss, uh, my co-host here at Generation Jihad, also my co-editor at the Long War Journal and a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation. He's going to join us and we're going to talk beautiful situation that exists in Africa today. Caleb, welcome to Generation Jihad. Awesome. Thank you. Although I don't know if I should be like welcomed. I mean, I am the co-host yes. now. Yes, this is true. I'm still adjusting, Caleb. I, <laughs> please, please bear with me. Again, good for you and I to get back on the horse and and uh, do this Generation Jihad thing. So, well, today we have the the most unfortunate task of providing yet another depressing update on the jihad in Africa. You know, look, I, I, you could make the argument that Africa is uh, the epicenter of today's jihad. Uh, I'll just read something Caleb recently tweeted. Quote, the future of jihadism in Africa looks bleaker than ever. United Nations peacekeepers forced out of Mali while African Union forces begin drawing down in Somalia. Al-Qaeda's African branches will be the prime beneficiaries, all as the Islamic State fills in additional gaps, end quote. So uh, today we'll be talking about these topics. We'll be talking about Mali. We'll be talking about the uh, the drawdown of the African Union forces in Somalia. And also um, we'll be talking about uh, what happened in Uganda last last month with one of the worst terrorist attacks in Uganda in over a decade. Um, So let's pick up and we'll start with Mali. In mid-June, Mali officially requests the the United Nations forces to leave Mali because they, quote, failed to stabilize the country, end quote. Caleb, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, What is the what is happening in Mali? How soon will the United forces be leaving? And um, who's going to come in and fill the void? Well, I think on the first question of what is happening in Mali, I think, you know, it's important for people to remember that this is sort of the next logical step in the trajectory that the junta in Bamako is kind of, you know, on. Uh, you know, they forced the French out and, you know, effectively forced all the other European partners, American partners out, but kicking the French out. Um, if I can interrupt on that, that's just like yeah. Afghanistan. As the United States withdrew its forces, everyone else had to leave. They were The United States was the prime driver, the prime guarantor of security, and that's the same thing in Mali. The French were had the largest presence, and without the French forces there, no one else could really operate um, yeah. in, I mean, in safety. The French were the, the linchpin of the whole counterterrorism campaign in the Sahel, Operation Barkhan, and then Task Force Takuba, which was all of these different European nations uh, joining hand in hand with the French, but you know, once the French left, there really was no other choice for these other states but to leave. I mean, the main actor in those you know military campaigns left, so why stay? Um, so yeah, I mean, the UN leaving is just the next logical step, and you know it kind of fits with the anti-Western, especially anti-French sentiment the Junta and Bamako is you know espousing. You know the you know they they moved in Russian Wagner, you know, paramilitary forces as their security partners. And really since Wagner came in, which I believe was a year or two ago now, the the, the Junta really has taken a harsh anti-UN stance, which now that they're, you know, telling them to leave, it just makes sense. Like no one should be surprised by this. Um but yeah it, two quick questions there, uh Caleb. Yeah. How much what is the number of U.S. forces? U.S. I'm sorry, United Nations forces in Mali, and will the recent turmoil in Russia with the Wagner, uh, whatever you want to call it, insurrection, coup, um, whatever, how is that going to impact, or if at all, uh, operate Wagner operations inside of Mali? Well, on the first question, I mean, there was, I believe, like. Maybe fifteen thousand, maybe a little more than that. Seventeen thousand, significant. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot. I mean, it was most. It was the deadliest peacekeeping mission in the world. I mean, I think it's a little over three hundred UN peacekeepers died in Mali, um, and most of them African, by the way. Um, but you, I mean, again, the, the deadliest operation, peacekeeping operation in the world. It's pretty sizable, um, and now they're gone, or they're leaving in the process of leaving. Um, on the second question, you know, I really don't know. 
Um, I think that's sort of the million dollar question right now of with what happened in Russia, what happens to Wagner in Africa. Um, and as of right now, there doesn't seem to be any sort of difference. Um, so we'll see. That's the only thing I could say on that. Um, but on a previous question you had, I, I think it's worth noting that the UN still has another six months in Mali, um, but it's not operational. This is the, the UN Security Council voted, I think, just a couple of days ago um, to end the mandate for MINUSMA. That's, that's the UN mission in Mali, um, where they, they explicitly said that they will continue the mission for another six months. And that's purely just to withdraw everybody. Um, so by December, there will be zero UN personnel in Mali. And, you know, allegedly only the Russian Wagner forces, if they're still there. Uh, but again, that's, that's still up in the air, but nothing has really changed for them on the ground in Africa um, since Pergosian's little insurrection. 15 to 17,000 troops. Look, we can argue the efficacy of the UN troops in Mali, but as you noted, they took significant casualties, the most deadly Clearly, they were engaged at some level. That is a, a, a massive void that's going to be have to. I don't think uh, Wagner can fill that void. I mean, hell, in, in Russia, in Russia, Ukraine, that war, uh, it's estimated uh, Wagner has something like 25,000 troops. That's obviously, you know, quite significant. That's going to be the largest uh, apportionment of Wagner troops. The, there's. It's going to yeah, be I mean, really interesting to see where this situation, how this situation develops um, once those UN forces withdraw. And and look, and another quick point, you know, I, you 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 hit it, Caleb, and I'll just reiterate it. Once the withdrawal is announced, the primary mission for whatever force that is is withdraw. They are going to be in security and pack up mode at that point. They're not going to be conducting their actual mission to secure these areas they're just going to secure themselves and secure their stuff so you know yeah, and can, they don't even have that mandate anymore to be operational right. it's purely just to withdraw and let's say that, like even if the, the u.n numbers are smaller i mean even if they were 12,000 13,000 14 whatever it was you know yeah Wagner is not going to deploy that many troops i mean you mentioned 25,000 that's in ukraine I think the last estimate for Wagner in Mali is probably around a thousand, maybe a little more. Um, but obviously, that's not enough to do anything um, substantial. And I think that's sort of the main point that you know I've written about before uh, with my co-author Ryan O'Farrell, um, who's also my coworker at Bridgeway. Um, you know, we wrote a piece that basically talked about you know there's all of these you know alarms being you know, sounded about Wagner and Maui and the Sahel in general. Um, to a degree, they're kind of overblown of that Wagner will not be able to replace France or the UN. They won't be able to do, you know, essentially what they promised these African states, that is to bring stability. I mean, they are there for primarily two reasons. One, to extract resources, to, you know, fund their operations elsewhere, and B, expand Russia's influence. Um, although, Point B might be a little shaky now post Prigozhin's that, that coup attempt, whatever you want to call it, but we'll see. Um, and, you know, they're not going to deploy that many forces. And even if they did, you know, who's to say that, the you know, the first sign of trouble, they don't pull back. I mean, that's what happened in Mozambique. I mean, prior to, you know, the Rwandans and the South African militaries going into Mozambique, it was the Wagner. And... Wagner took a heavy loss in early 2019. I mean, I think dozens of troops were, were killed. And then they hightailed it out. They said that was enough. Uh, you know, who's to say if they don't get more active in Mali, they take, start taking heavy casualties. They reassess and be like, look, it's not worth it anymore. Um, especially when they have lucrative gold mines in, you know, Central African Republic that's, you know, raking in billions, if, you know, millions if not billions of dollars for Wagner. Um so, yeah, it's all up in the air. Um, I think that, you know, the main point is that, you know, this is coming at a time where both Al-Qaeda, you know, Group for Support of Islam and Muslims, JNIM, um, and, you know, the Islamic State Sahel province are both surging in the Sahel. Um, you know, you have JNIM moving further south. They're directly threatening Bamako. I mean, they're doing a series of attacks. 
you know, consecutively over the past several months around the capital Bamako, which we've actually talked about on the podcast before of them creating these sort of attack zones or attack lines or, you know, sort of building out or encircling Bamako, uh, you know, cutting off these routes. Um, they're surging into, you know, the littoral West Africa. At the same time, the Islamic State is effectively controlling an entire province of Mali, the Manaka in the north. They're they're battling AQ for supremacy in the eastern Burkina Faso. I mean, it, it's a mess. Um, and the UN is is weaving in the midst of all this. And nominally, Wagner is supposed to protect the junta in Bamako. Um, which, I mean, one quick caveat on that is that, you know, yeah, there'll be security vacuum to a degree, but it probably won't be as much as what people might think. I mean, a lot of this stuff was happening while the French were still there. I mean, it's sort of why the French were also kicked out because they weren't, I mean, they weren't, you know, effective at what they were meant to be doing, which is battling back AQ and IS. I mean, they they sort of failed in, in the Sahel. Uh, and not even sort of, they did fail in the Sahel, let's be honest. I mean, billions yeah, of dollars. They didn't kill some senior leaders. And the I mean, they killed senior leaders, but I mean, as you... As you know, like what does that actually do for an insurgency? I mean, you have people rise up the ranks. I mean, it, it's anything. The the violence has gotten worse. Even after confusing counterterrorism with uh, yeah. counterinsurgency, taking a counterterrorism approach when a counterinsurgency approach is, is needed is you know one of the biggest failures in multiple theaters. Uh, right. So I mean, the UN leaving. Right. I mean, the UN leaving may not like suck Mali more into this vacuum, but it's still significant. I mean, you still have, you know, these these forces that do provide some sort of protection for a lot of villages, for especially major cities that these groups, you know, aren't able to, you know, actively mobilize upon. That's going to be gone now. Uh, and there's no way the Malian forces are able to provide that same level of security. There's sure as hell way no, like, no way that, that Wagner is able to do that. Uh, so it's a mess. And, you know, I, I think that's the best way to describe it is is just a catastrophic mess uh, in the Sahel that is now threatening littoral West Africa. Caleb, if, if, you know, in northern Mali, I mean, I think the real threat to Al Qaeda there will be the Islamic State and vice versa. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I you know I hate to do this little thought experiment, but if I were Wagner Probably would just let them duke it out in the north. Then whoever wins, that's who I'd go after. But I don't want to give them any, any ideas. Um, <laughs> it's a little yeah, all like around that, there. No, I mean, you're like, actually right. I mean, the Islamic State basically is controlling, you know, Monaco, like I said. But AQ is trying to, you know, mobilize forces, re- reconstitute its forces to, to launch a counteroffensive against IS and Monaco. Um, they're battling for supremacy in eastern Burkina Faso, sort of in northern Niger. Uh, you know, some of these areas are, you know, contested by either. It's really hard to, to determine who's controlling which, but I mean, it's getting worse and worse in the north uh, in these sort of rural areas of Burkina and Niger. Um, and, you know, as violence expands further south and, you know, if violence gets worse in Togo and Benin, you know, who's to say, you know, the Islamic State doesn't try to make a play? I mean, because IS is also you know, doing some operations in Benin, they're using it as a transit route between the Sahel and Nigeria, you know, that can get a lot worse, but that's directly related to the violence emanating from Mali and Burkina Faso. There's nothing good that emanates, you know, people always say, well, let them, you know, let them do their red on red violence and we'll come out on top. But the reality, watching this for decades, the one who wins comes out on top and it just breeds more extremism um it you know the two never come out weaker someone ultimately winds up coming out on top and that's no way to you know you don't base your security on hoping they both lose because it often doesn't work that way i'm sorry say that again please although we do hope they both lose I mean, certainly hope so but yeah. you can't count on that right and, you know, look, I there for a while there, I thought like, you know, the next, you know, I would have put my money on Somalia, although we'll have that discussion shortly on being, you know, the next area, large region to fall to a terrorist group. But and I think we're, I think I think with this withdrawal, you know, 
Northern Mali, you know, might, you know, the odds are evening out here um, based on that. That's a significant number of troops that are pulling out. Um, it's something that, that both the Islamic State and Al Qaeda had to contend with, with the, the presence of these peacekeepers. Again, we could debate their efficacy all day long, but that's something that they had to devote resources to dealing with. And, you know, now that, you know, no one is going to be able, no one's going to walk in there and fill the void. Um, it's just going to improve the position of both of these terrorist groups. No, and I mean, I think realistically, what I could see Mali and by extension Wagner doing is you shore up defenses around Bamako. I mean, that's going to be your best bet. But you'll probably have to let AQ or IS take some of these other areas because you just can't defend. You're going to be overstretched. So you protect the most important one, which is Bamako, which I mean, is so, so depressing to talk about and also like surreal of a major African capital now that has to contend with, you know, major loss of territory to either an Al Qaeda branch or an Islamic State branch. Yeah. And look, this was the, I always have to go back to Afghanistan, but, you know, I just can't get away from it. But it, the parallels are there. This is what the Afghan government needed to do once the U.S. announced the withdrawals. What I argued, the debate in Washington was binary, stay and continue doing what we're doing, which was slow failure, which was what was happening with the French and with the U.N. Um, in Mali now, um, or leave. And that was the only two options discussed, but there was a third way. And that's what you're exactly what you're describing. What the Afghans needed to do was secure the capital, retake key areas in the north to secure those populations that were pro-government or anti-Taliban, depending on how you would look at it. And, you know, put the, put up Northern Alliance 2.0. But that was that was never an option because, well, plenty of reasons for that. But, um, yeah, it's a, what you're advocating there is exactly what I'm what I'm at was advocating back in. 2020 and 2021. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe they're a little smarter in Mali. We can only hope. Maybe. I mean, I think this is a good transition to another depressing topic, which is which is Somali, which already does have a sizable chunk of its territory under the control of an Al Qaeda branch. Um, which I mean, just to get that started, I mean, it's sort of the same thing, uh, but on a longer time time frame here of the African Union. Uh, which is now go, going by Atmos, the African Union Transition Mission in Somalia. Um, they've agreed to officially start drawing down troops this year um, as part of its longer withdrawal plan to leave by the end of 2024. Um, so I believe 2,000 troops left in June, and then another 3,000 is supposed to leave in September, um, which should bring the troop number down from 18,000 to roughly 13,000. Um, and then periodically they'll do these uh, withdrawal periods until the end of 2024 um, is the current plan. That could always be extended or canceled, who knows. Um, but as of right now, that is what the AU is going for. Um, and in, the, in this process, they're handing over, you know, these the, the, these FOBs that they've built, these forward operating bases they've built to local Somali units. Um, but I mean, the big question there is, you know, how well are these small units going to be able to sustainably hold all of these different FOBs um, when they've sort of had their own problems with their own FOBs, with their own bases? Um, and now you're extending, you're overarching, you know, the, the Somali National Army, the SNA, to control all of these different bases around the country, which, I mean, Somalia, to its credit, is building up a bigger military. They are recruiting more. They are doing more training, uh, which they're getting support from various different countries to do that but still like it, the big question remains how well they will to actually sustain these bases and shabab is already testing that i mean uh, since you know handing over several of these bases um since june uh, shabab's already attacked several um even just i think two in the last day of uh, these recently handed over bases to the smaller units and it's very clear to me, at least, that they're 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 probing. I mean, they're they're seeing how well these these new units are actually going to be able to to hold these FOBs after the AU leaves. Um, which I mean, the Somali government has stated that their forces repelled these attacks. We don't know until Shabab releases you know photos or videos from these raids. Which you know, I I love Somalia. I, I wish nothing the best for Somalia, but. Oftentimes, Shabab is more accurate in its its statements um, than the Somali government. 
Um, so there's been many times that the Somali government has said that an attack's been repelled, but that's not the case. I mean, or the Kenyans, or the or the, or the Kenyans, or the Burundians. I, or, yep. You know, this this happens too much in Somalia. It's just free propaganda for Shabab because it's easily refutable. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but the big point is is that you know, with this drawdown, with the handing over of bases, it's it's really going to be up to these other foreign actors to help prop up the Somali government and especially the Somali military to actually sustainably hold these bases. So you do, you do see the US, Turkey, and possibly the UAE um doing drone strikes still. Um which I mean just to go on a little tangential discussion here about the UAE, I think that's uh something that no one really saw coming is that the UAE are doing drone strikes in Somalia, which to be clear, not confirmed. Uh, Somali media made a whole deal about you know this unknown airstrike that they were pinning on the UAE. The UAE has never confirmed it one way or the other. I've got conflicting reports saying it was, some saying it wasn't, so who knows. Um, it is clear that the UAE is building up more of a foothold in Somalia, though. I mean, they do have troops in the north uh, with an unclear mandate of what they're doing in Puntland. That's Somalia's semi-autonomous northern region. Uh I believe it was last year, like dozens of Emirati troops landed in Basaso with armored vehicles, and no one really knows exactly what they're doing. Um, and then earlier this year in Jubaland, so that's the exact opposite. That's the, the state in the extreme south of Somalia. Uh, the UAE plans to build a military base there. So we'll see. Um, and you do have Turkey doing drone strikes. You have the U.S. doing drone strikes. But, you know, this is something you point out a lot, Bill, is that Drone strikes aren't enough. Airstrikes will not defeat Shabab. Uh, and, you know, we, have, we haven't learned that. Somalia is still going down that route, but it, it will take a lot more than just these military options. And, you know, not even major military operations at that. I mean, these are small-scale pinpoint airstrikes or collective self-defense strikes that the U.S. likes to say. But... These are you know, the self-defense strikes uh, for the listeners. They're the ones usually when a base is getting overrun or a Somali military unit uh, launched an operation but gets on their back heels, then the U.S. launches an airstrike in um, in order to help bail them out. So they're not even targeted strikes in the sense of like they're not offensive strikes. They're, as they call them, self-defense strikes. So it's, it's an attempt to not lose right uh and, and these strikes <laughs> that's the best way to put it right it's, too far it's to few lose. and far in between it's it's we're not you know we caleb both you and i tracked the the the, the airstrike or drone campaign in somalia even at its height it was in dozens a year um it's just not enough we're talking you know for the amount of operations that shabab is actually conducting and um, this idea that war, this, this should have gone away a decade ago, that wars, these types of wars can be won via the air. The Israelis learned this in Lebanon several times. The U.S. should have learned it in places like Vietnam and um, and, and then again in Iraq and Afghanistan. But um, it just seems like it's, it's the easiest tool that's available um, that puts the fewest amount of people in, in harm's way. Um, that's great if you don't want to take casualties, but it's no way to fight it and win a war. No. And, you know, a quick little point before we transition, which I mean, these are kind of related, is that, you know, while the U.S. is playing that game, Somalia is playing the body count game, which is something the U.S. also did in Vietnam, is that, you know, thinking that by killing or saying that we've killed so many of these these fighters that, you know, it's going to actually degrade the group. But it's this is also easily refutable. I mean, Somalis put out statements, so oh, we've killed 50 here, we've killed 100 here, we've killed 70 here. In the last six months, we've killed 3,000 Shabab fighters. Well, you know, let's think about that critically. You're saying that you've killed 3,000 fighters when you're saying that they only have 12,000. Like, you're telling me you've killed that many in that, that short amount of time? And how many were wounded and taken off the battlefield? Yeah. And usually it, that number doesn't like, make sense. And they're still controlling, you know, more. Still controlling like 30 something percent of the country. I mean, 35, like it, it's insane. So it doesn't make sense. 
Somalia is not a, you know, not the only one. The U.S. has done this. They've done it in Afghanistan. They've done it in Iraq. They've done it. Oh, yeah. Al-Qaeda. We, this is, this is not to harp on Somalia. This yeah, is this a, is. Yeah. The, I think Somalia learned it from the best. I mean, look, the U.S. Look, I go back and, you know, people are like, oh, you're critical of the Obama or you're critical. Of Biden. I go back to the trumpet. President Trump keeping a list of Al-Qaeda after 9-11 and after 75% of the senior leaders who they thought were senior leaders, right, or key leaders within Al-Qaeda were killed, that Al-Qaeda was defeated. He wasn't, you know, look, President Obama, President Trump or President Biden, they weren't the first ones to be talking about Al-Qaeda being dead, decimated, defeated, declined, degraded. You know, it started in the early 2000s with checking, you know, checking names off of a list as if these groups aren't dynamic and have, you know, a cadre of people that are ready to step up and replace them. So, yeah, we're not we're not just busting on Somalia here. Um, it doesn't help their case. I, I always argued that, like, you know, you're not going to win wars by lying to people. Being honest is the only way um, that well, you I get the support you need. Wholeheartedly agree. I mean, going back on, like, the, you know, saying the base or an attack on a base was repelled. I mean, if you were more upfront of, you know, just admitting it, you would get more people on your side. You would get more states on your side. Instead, you're providing easily refutable propaganda to Shabab, who's inherently fighting for legitimacy in the public eye. And you're, you're essentially handing it to them by giving them this free opportunity to show them how more accurate they are at these things than you. Um, it, that needs to change. In the same way with these body count campaigns, it just needs to change as okay. as they move on to, against this fight against Shabab. Which, on that point, it should be clear or noted here that you know the the counteroffensive against Shabab that the, that Somalia has been doing since last September pretty much stalled. Like it is, it is not uh, you know doing. It's not at the same pace that it was. Um, I mean, there are some small scale raids still going on especially in like middle and lower Chappelle, um, sort of the peripheries of Mogadishu. Um, but what was happening in like Haran and, you know, Gal Gadud and, you know, a little bit in Bay, it's not the same. It just, it, it's completely stalled. There's so much political turmoil happening in Haran, the, you know, a, a state in the center of Somalia, um, which is really the epicenter of this counteroffensive, whereby Somalia used these clan fighters, the Maoisli against Shabab, where, but now, the the mastermind behind that plan of using the Maoisli, who was also the governor of Haran, uh, Ali J.T. Osman, was fired. Like the 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 president of Hirshabel State, which Hirshabel State is the combination of Middle Shabel uh, and Haran as a federal member state of, of Somalia. The, go- the the president of that state fired the governor of Haran. And now this former governor slash mastermind of this sort of counteroffensive is now claiming he has his own state, that he he's creating his own federal member state of Somalia. He's no longer part of this here Chabelle. He's his own thing. You answer to me now. And now the the, gov- the federal government in Mogadishu has to deal with that bullshit in addition to actually trying to fight Shabab, which, I mean, this this political sideshow just takes all this attention, all the impetus, all this, you know, leverage that they had in Haran with the clan fighters now just kind of it's it's in turmoil it's up in the air uh, and i think that's the big question of what the hell happens with the clan fighters now like they they see all of this political infighting with a state that they're nominally defending you know what what hopes do they have that they're going to continue to be supportive that they're going to continue to 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 go on the offensive that the backing of this, the federal state is going to come to them or even the regional state like it's completely ruins this offensive in the center because in this planned counteroffensive in the south in Jubaland, or the so-called phase two, it's never coming. Like to be honest, like it's been going on or being planned or being announced for like five, four months now. It's not coming. Like supposedly more troops from Ethiopia, Kenya, Djibouti, whatever, are supposed to come into Somalia that are separate from the African Union that are going to be fighting alongside Somalia and Jubaland. Where are they? They've not come. There's been no plans for them to actually come any time soon. Nobody's mobilizing. Nothing's happening with this so-called phase two. So for all intents and purposes, this counteroffensive against Shabab has stalled, and Shabab knows it. 
And that's why we've seen major counterattacks, major raids against these, these big military bases across the country. Like in, in, in the south, in the center, in the middle, like it's, it's, it's all been in the last couple of weeks that Shabab has realized that, hey, the incentive is not on us. Like we have the momentum now and they're taking advantage of it. And, you know, the longer that the, the Somali government delays this counteroffensive, the, the longer they have this political bullshit, this clan infighting in the center, Shabab's going to take advantage of it. Yeah, the, you know, look, I, as you were talking, the only thing I could think here was the Somali government has lost the initiative in this counter to this offensive against uh, Shabab. Shabab is, is, has taken the initiative. They've launched their own counteroffensive. We've seen this with these raids on the Somali, Ethiopian bases. I believe a Ugandan base was, is that right? Was attacked as well. And, you know, I want to go back to one quick point, Caleb, too. When, when these countries lie about the, the results of these attacks, it, it doesn't, it, it also hurts them in the eyes of their foreign supporters, right? I mean, if you're honest about what happened, look, you know, this happened, we could use this, this, and this, you know, more drones for observation and then uh, maybe better armor, whatever it is that you may need to prevent these things from happening in the future. But if you say it didn't happen and then we find out it is, all it does is degrade the trust um, that countries like the U.S. or, or whoever that might be providing you support. You know, I start looking at if I'm in charge, I start going, you know, I can we really trust these guys to say what's happening on the ground? If we give them what, the, what they say they need, is that what truly what they need? It hurts along so many different ways. And, you know, look, I, I, I think you would agree. I call Shabab the, the Taliban of, of Africa. They're well organized. They're not, in, you know, look like Taliban. They're not supermen, but they they're committed. They're well armed. They figured out, you know, they have problems with the clans, of course, just like the Taliban had problems with their, you know, various uh, tribes and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, they play these games far better than the Somali government does and, and their foreign supporters do. And that, that gives them the initiative when things start going wrong, when you see these internal divisions uh, burst out into the open like this, it's, it just gives them, they have the advantage in the air, in, in particularly in southern and in central Somalia. And I just, you know, again, I can flip a coin at this point, which, you know, who goes first? Is it, you know, southern central Somalia or is it northern Mali? Um, probably at this point that after this discussion, I'd probably go northern Mali. Probably northern Mali. Yeah. Uh, especially when one province is definitely already, already controlled by a jihadi group. Um, you know, and I think that's another key point is Shabab plays the clan game so well. They understand the dynamics. They understand, you know, if a wider clan makes an agreement with the government, especially that's what happened with the Maui in the central part of the of the country. If you had these these wider clan families make agreements with the government to fight on behalf of the government, well, what Shabab did was, I mean, what they've been doing for a long time is they find a sub clan of that wider clan family that may not be supportive of that. They may not be agreeable to that. They may not, you know, get the same support as these other clan, clan, you know, relatives, part of the wider clan family. So they'll make agreements with those subclans of this wider clan family to essentially eat at that clan agreement from the inside. If you, you start, you know, this insidious, you know, threat within the clan family that has this agreement with the government, it eats away. Uh, and you start getting inner clan dynamics and politics and infighting and whatever that Shabbat benefits from. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be a main threat going forward in the center. Um, I've said this many times uh, on Twitter or on here of, I think it's a little different in the South, uh, in Jubaland or, you know, in Guido or, you know, some parts of Lower Chappelle, but not all of Lower Chappelle, um, that a lot of those clans are pretty pro shabab or you know if they're not inherently pro shabab they've they've lived under them for for a long time over a decade that's who they know that's who they know that's providing them education food basic social services roads whatever you know it's going to be really hard to take those clans away if they were able to do in the center where shabab did make a lot of mistakes with the clans 
And, you know, they haven't really done that in the South. Uh, so I think even if this phase two were to happen or were to begin, it may not have the same success that they had in, you know, the center, which I think that's part of the reason why Somalia, one of these other states, to send in more additional troops, because I think they know that, that they're not going to find the same clan support like they were in the center. Um, but it's just like you're going to have to have clans defect away from Shabab in the first place. And it's way more difficult to do in the South. And, well, and it's going to be way more difficult to, to do as the government weakens, as, a, as it's more divided, as African Union troops begin withdrawing. I mean, you know, that's... Sorry, Caleb. I mean, no. I mean, I mean that's that's you're exactly right. That's where I was going with this. Is is that of and and as you said earlier, the small governments lost the initiative. So now they have to work to rebuild that, and then try to do it again. But that may not even happen, man. Like all of these different political issues are rising up that are you know separate to the fight against Shabab and distracting everyone from the fighting of Shabab as, as Somali tries to rebuild all of these relationships with various different clans, different political figures, whatever. Um, and, you know, so a little separate from this discussion, but I think still important to talk about in this section is that, you know, as the Somali government weakens and this counteroffensive is stalled, Shabab will probably look elsewhere to do attacks too. I mean, they've already done major incursion into Ethiopia last year. I mean, hundreds of troops sent over the border, uh, which I think Ethiopia, for their credit, did stop a lot of it, but who knows how many Shabab troops actually got through to Ethiopia. Uh, Kenya is facing some of the worst IED attacks they've had in several years. Uh, I think uh, maybe around a dozen, maybe closer to 20 people have died in the last couple of weeks from IEDs in northern Kenya. I mean, all of this is happening maybe not the the Ethiopian incursion, but the, especially mainly the Kenya violence is happening because Shabab is growing stronger because the government no longer has the same pressure on them that they, that they did. You know, Caleb, that's that you mentioned the IEDs and that's something you and I and, and Tom Jocelyn, we have always noticed that once we start seeing that technology, that tactic being used that uh, on the battlefield, that's, a, that's an indicator that and suicide bombs, right. Of right, which I mean, they've the done both in, in Kenya a lot. But I think that what, what makes this stand out is that you've seen a quick succession of IEDs in the last couple of weeks. That is the big thing. If they've always done IEDs, sporadic IEDs in Kenya, but now it's like, you know, especially, especially last week, you got like every other day, it was like an IED. And that's, that's crazy. I mean, Kenya and, and Somalia did reopen the border, which the border was closed for, for years. Uh, so maybe that's also playing into it. Shabab is finding it easier to move across. Um, but even when that the border was closed, I mean, they're still doing attacks in Kenya. They do have a sizable Kenyan contingent. They do have, you know, its own separate little army unit down there, Jay Shaiman. Uh, so, I mean, they've always been there. They've always done stuff. But now you're seeing it in such quick succession that I think everyone should be worried. Yeah, that is, that's an indication that they have, they can they have the capacity to build multiple IEDs as well as teams to scout and deploy them. So you're not just doing that with one cell. There's multiple cells that are operating um, in Northern Kenya at this point. That's what I was trying to get at. Like, yeah, yeah. The fact that we see a suicide attack or an IED, but when you start seeing them, when the frequency starts upping, like we start, we're seeing right now, we know you've got a real problem that they're, they're committing to the fight there. Um, IED, but the bomb builders, that's not, you know, an easy asset that you just throw away. That's something they, they, they're creating those teams and they're committing them to that fight. So you know that that fight is, is viewed as being significant to Shabab. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's super interesting. And, you know, if there already is like a research paper on this, you know, I'm sorry to whoever wrote that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but someone needs to write this if it doesn't already exist. Again, if it does exist, please send it my way. Of that, when Shabab does attacks in Kenya, especially these IED attacks, they blow up communication masts first to prevent people from calling or texting the police, to prevent the police or military from communicating with each other. And then they do these attacks, these set these IEDs. And I think that's just this. I mean, I hate to use this word because it's it's terrible what they're doing, but it's, it's so smart of oh. how they're doing these. 
And if someone has a research paper on that tactic, that would be, please send it my way. So um, it, listen, I don't think people confuse, um, you know, using terms like smart or brilliant or whatnot, clever to, to, to indicate that we like them. It just, look, you got to give credit where credit is due. And Caleb, what you're describing right there, I witnessed time and time again in Afghanistan, the Taliban would often not blow up the cell phone towers, but they would order them to shut down at certain periods um, um, or just shut down, period, and when they were conducting operations in areas because the Taliban didn't want people using those really cell phones were the only mode of communication, and they didn't want people ratting them out for planning IDs or moving troops around. So, yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, I'd love to see that paper if someone's written that as well, but that's a, that is a tactic I've seen in other theaters. Yeah, so that's that's our homework for the listeners. Please, yeah, if it's out way. there, please send it our way. I'm, th- that tactic is so interesting to me. I would love to learn more about it. It, it is. It's smart. Look, they, they they understand the lay of the land. Kayla, let's move on to, to, to that massacre in Uganda. Talk to us. Give us the breakdown on what happened there. Absolutely horrific attack. Yeah, I mean, that's the best way to put it, man. It's like, and I hope no one saw the photos. If you did see the photos, I'm sorry. They were... They were, it was brutal. Um, but yeah, so early in June, um, you know, the Allied Democratic Forces or ADF, which, uh, which calls itself, you know, actually calls itself the Islamic State Central African Province. That's what it's recognized as by the Islamic State. It's an official branch of the Islamic State. Um, but for the sake of, you know, what people know it as locally in Uganda and Congo, ADF, that's what I'm going to call it. Um, the ADF did this horrific massacre at a you know a secondary school in this town of Mpondwe, which Mpondwe is a border town literally right across the border uh, from Congo, um, border crossing between Mpondwe and Kasindi, um, Kasindi and Congo. So Mpondwe is on the Ugandan side where the ADF came in brutally massacred around 38 students with machetes, uh, some with guns, uh, some they, they burned alive. Um, they also killed the security guard at the school, and then they killed, I believe, three community members that were trying to like intervene. Um, and then they also abducted six people and then fled back into Congo. Um, I mean, so a total of around 44 killed in this attack, which... Is definitely the worst terrorist attack Uganda has seen, you know, I believe since at least the, the 2010 suicide bombings in Kampala that, that Shabab, Shabab did. Um, you know, and I think this is a super interesting case, um, you know, not because of how brutal it was, and it, it is absolutely horrific, but, you know, it's the hallmarks of the ADF. The ADF does brutal massacres and attacks and assaults in neighboring Congo, where they will go into a village and kill dozens. Um, But, you know, the Islamic State has claimed a lot of those. The Islamic State does not shy away from claiming these massacres. But yet, even though this attack in in Western Uganda bears the hallmarks of ADF, the Ugandan government and officials blame the ADF, uh, the Islamic State hasn't claimed it yet. Um, It doesn't seem like they're going to claim it. Which I think is pretty interesting because um, you know they don't really shy away from it. But you know, I think you know an important discussion that we could have, Bill, is you know sort of guess, make educated guesses on on why that might be. And you know, one thing I was thinking about is you know let's look at the case of Shikau, Abu Bakr Shikau in Nigeria, which infamously kicked out of the Islamic State for being too brutal. I mean, this is the guy that would use girls as young as three or four as suicide bombers um and that's just that's bad pr or if these for even for a group like the islamic state that's when you're bad too PR. extreme for the islamic state you yeah may have so one thing you know that could be preventing them from you know claiming this attack is the victims were primarily teenagers these were not adults these i mean they weren't kids but they weren't adults they were teenagers um so maybe that's that's stopping the Islamic State from putting their name on it. But at the same time, like they've claimed attacks in Congo where it's been teenagers that have died. They may not have been the prime victims, but there's definitely been times where children or teenagers were killed as part of these raids or massacres. 
to take claim in Congo. So what makes this different? Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone really has a good answer. Um, no. And Caleb, you mentioned something I remember, I recall, I can't remember what year it was, unless it was around 2014 or 15 in Pakistan, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan conducted an attack on a military school in the tribal areas and killed well, well over a hundred. Most of them were children. And, you know, look, movement of Taliban in Pakistan, like the Islamic State Central Africa province and all these other groups, you know, never shy away from, they, they took credit for it. But they have, there's a lot of blowback for for that one. I think there's something when you cross the line, um, you know, who do, you know, killing a couple of children, you know, who are just, I hate using the term, but collateral damage versus directly targeting children. There might be a red line there. It's not that I don't think some of these murderous individuals really care, but they worried about the the optics of it, right? That that might be a bridge too far. You know, one one thought I had, you know, was this actually sanctioned by the top leadership? Um, you know, that's a certainly, you know, maybe maybe it was a rogue, I hate to use that term, a rogue element, but it could have just been a local group said, hey, this is a good idea. Let's go do this. And then once higher up got wind of it, they were like, ooh, that one doesn't look good. So they might not want to. No, and I mean, on that side. point, uh, it was like a week before they did this, um, the ADF committed a smaller scale massacre on the Congolese side of the border in Kasindi. Um, so it's very likely, you know, the same group or part of the same group are the ones that crossed the border into Uganda, which Uganda has come out publicly and has said that it was a small group, roughly maybe five to 10 individuals that crossed uh, over into Mpandwe, stayed a few nights and then committed the attack and then left back to Congo, where they went back into the bush and back in the direction of where the ADF is known to have their camps. Um, yeah, maybe it was a detach from that other massacre that decided to do their own thing. And maybe it wasn't sanctioned. Who knows? Um, you know, on that point, you know, if these groups are unhappy with it, right? Like I remember there was a suicide attack and again, I'm going to use movement of Taliban in Pakistan as a, a, a branch of it. Um, you know, conducted this one attack. Just can't remember the details of it, but I remember the overall arching thing. And the the actual the move the lead the overall leadership of the movement in Taliban in Pakistan like basically denounced it, right? And said, well, we don't agree. We didn't sanction that. But the individual who's was responsible for this attack, or his his faction was responsible for it, he wasn't kicked out of the group. No one was ever punished. Um you know, he's still a member of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan's Shura Council or its, its executive committee. So these groups may not approve of it, um, at least for the optics, but they, if they really didn't, if this was really something so horrific to them, then, you know, they should punish the individuals, but we'll never, we'll never see that type of well, uh, I mean, activity. It, I personally don't think it wasn't not sanctioned, if that makes sense. Like, like I probably was sanctioned. I mean, the ADF does terrible things in Congo, so it's kind of on the money for what they're known to do, their MO. Um, but one thing that you also mentioned in our discussion earlier today, which, again, for the listeners, we have the same discussion multiple times a month before we actually record it. Like, it's part of the reason why Bill and Tom started this podcast is we started having these conversations like, man, that should be a podcast. But anyway, on one of these phone calls, uh, or actually I think this was text of, you know, what if it is issues with media distribution? I mean, maybe because it's, you know, in the bush, deep bush, uh, you know, the group that perpetrated the attack was being pursued by the UPDF. Like maybe, sorry, the UPDF is the Uganda People's Defense Forces, the Ugandan Army. you know, maybe they they weren't able to get the media out on time in a timely fashion, and just the Islam other events happened around the world that the Islamic State wouldn't have got the media attention for, um, and they decided to hold on to it, and they just didn't claim it yet. Um, or you know, maybe it is something more to cause some sort of confusion, disruption, you know, whatever. But it's just this is, I think a lot of people who who watch this area or you know, are interested in the group are, are kind of confused of, you know, why the Islamic State hasn't claimed this. Um, and there's so many different possibilities that, you know, one could be true, all could be true at the same time. Who knows? 
Yeah, it really is puzzling. Taylor and I have puzzled over this since the attack. We were like, where is the claim? Where is that claim? Why aren't they doing this? We can only speculate. Um, I think yeah. you know, there's and it, like, again, it's like it, it, we know it's ADF because I mean, not only are the Ugandan officials adamant that it is, but like it, it's their MO. Like it, it fits exactly their MO. Uh, they did a similar attack in 1998 in sort of the same region, attacking a college. I, and I believe they killed like around 80 something people, abducting 100 something others, you know, and the aforementioned <laughs> massacres in Congo. Like this is something they 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 do. Uh, so it's just weird that, you know, this one just doesn't uh, meet the mark for whatever reason. Um, you know, and it's possible we might not get it until the next magazine release or the next, you know, it, it, that claim could still happen. It's just shocking. They're, the Islamic State's media operations are often much better than that. Letting such a big, such a high well, level attack. I mean, like on that power. point, I think that there could be something there of like, Islamic State's central media apparatus is definitely on the decline of they are struggling to put out long-form videos. They are struggling to maintain some sort of, you know, operational tempo in terms of claiming attacks. I mean, at the height of the Islamic State in 2014, 2015, I mean, they were pumping 100 claims a day, maybe two or three videos, if not that. Now you're looking at, we're lucky to get three claims a day, maybe four, maybe five, and like a month or like a video every three or four months like something is definitely happening at is central apparatus for their media um so maybe that's part of it maybe there is a video maybe there are things that these the islamic state wants to have this media event for but just technical limitations are preventing them from having that in a timely manner if that makes sense yeah, no, absolutely. Maybe the group that was the, fleeing the bush, you know, maybe they lost their video. Who knows, right? Um, yeah, we, again, we could only speculate, but I, I always find these ones interesting. When you're waiting for the claim, you know who did it. You know the MO. God, we've seen this in no. multiple. I mean, at the end of the day, like everyone knows who did it. Uh, you know, Uganda already has a military operation against them in Congo. Like, hopefully, somewhere down the line, whoever was behind it in the group will be brought to justice. Like, we know who, for all sorts of purposes, we know it was it was the group. Um, and I think that's one, if there is a silver lining, it's that. We don't need the claim these days. Like, we know it was them. Yeah, absolutely. Caleb, give us a little background on the groups that uh, terrorist groups operating in inside of Uganda itself. This is something we don't really hear about um the ugandans have a very um i would describe it as a very robust operation to target the islamic state networks and in not just in uganda but in the region we really don't hear about what has happened inside of uganda itself other than those attacks in kampala that we we you know that those made that were major by shabab you know it's just don't hear much no and uh, you know to be clear i'm just going to focus on Shabab and ADF, uh, you know, Uganda makes other distinctions for what counts as terrorist groups. I'm going to stick with jihadis. Yes, jihadis, um, of course. Yeah, just jihadis. Um, you know, I think Shabab in Uganda is sort of, you know, past its prime. Uh, Shabab is definitely still recruiting in Uganda or trying to, but it's 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 they're no longer the big name. They're no longer the the main group in Uganda. Um, it's 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 the ADF. The ADF has said we've been building up their networks um, for decades in Uganda. Um, you know, they started out in Uganda in the early 90s, mid 90s. Um, they did a low level insurgency in Uganda. They did, you know, the aforementioned, you know, attack on that, that college in Western Uganda in 1998. They did other bombings in, you know, Kampala, elsewhere um, in the country in you know the late 90s, early 2000s. They were pushed back into Congo by the UPDF, um, I think by the late 90s, but you know they still had a cross-border insurgency, uh, but that stopped by 2007. Um, but they still had these networks in, in, in you know, Kampala and, and elsewhere that you know, Uganda says helped Shabab conduct the 2010 bombings. Um, you know, I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what Uganda says. Um, but since the ADF joined the Islamic State roughly around 2017, Shabab has sort of lost the game in Uganda. Um, it's, it's, Uganda is now Islamic State territory. 
anyone who's joining a jihadi group from Uganda is joining the Islamic State, um, i.e. ADF. Um, you know, and is there a reason for that, Caleb? What's any any thoughts on why? Uh, why? Like what specifically? Why the Shabab declined and the Islamic State filled the void in Uganda? I just think that Shabab probably didn't put enough effort or didn't really see Uganda as, as, you know, as important as Kenya or as important as Ethiopia or, you know, what they're doing heavy recruitment campaigns. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason why they were recruiting uh, in Uganda and why they did the 2010 attacks is because Ugandan troops are in Somalia. Um, but you know, they never, even though they definitely had Ugandan recruits, they definitely had, you know, who knows how many dozen Ugandans were never to the same degree as like the Kenyans or the Tanzanians or the Ethiopians. Um, so I think Shabab probably just focused on where they know they could recruit heavily from. And then once the Islamic state started, you know, poking his head around central Africa, the sort of periphery countries where the where Shabab was recruiting from, but not to the same degree. So like Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi all fell to the Islamic State because the Islamic State saw that weakness and invested more in those areas than Shabab did. And so when the ADF officially became uh the Islamic State in twenty seventeen, or well they became ISCAP, the Central Africa province twenty nineteen, but they joined the Islamic State in twenty seventeen. Uh these sort of regional networks in Rwanda, in Burundi, and Tanzania, elsewhere, that the ADF has all kind of always historically had, just then became the Islamic State's networks. I mean, that's as simple as that. So co-opting uh, the ADF was certainly exactly. the coup for, for them, yeah. for the Islamic State. So I, I think it's, it's that. It's a, a combination of that Shabab's never really focused that much on Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, whatever, in the Islamic State saw that weakness when you know the ADF joined and just took the initiative, um, but even though you know ADF was pushed into Congo and the cross-border insurgency stopped around 2007, the group still did you know a series of targeted assassinations um, in Uganda from I want to say like 2011 to 2015 could be you know one or two years off on either ends, um, but they would essentially you know assassinate defectors, they would assassinate you know, anti-ADF, you know, Islamic preachers, you know, imams, sheikhs, whatever, uh, and government officials. Um, I mean, they they are believed to have assassinated a dozen, maybe a little over that between those years. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's that's interesting and important and very overlooked. Um, but those are small scale. Like, that's those are relatively small scale, cheap, but, but effective. Um, so the big change is 2021. Um, so this is post joining the Islamic State. This is after the Islamic State sends the money, you know, support and other you know means, which uh, you know, me and my colleagues at Bridgeway Foundation, we just released a report on the Islamic State funding to the ADF uh at George Washington University. Um, you know, which hopefully we'll do a podcast on soon and we'll we'll dive more into this topic, but for the Absolutely. sake of this discussion. You know, after the Islamic State money started coming in, the ADF's capacity for violence, and especially, you know, exporting that violence outside of Congo, just grew exponentially. So in 2021, you saw, you know, the 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 groups start doing suicide bombings. Uh, they never done suicide bombings before, but in June 2021, they did the first one in Bini and DRC, and then by August, they attempted to do one in northern Uganda, which thankfully failed uh but later in the year in october of 2021 uganda wasn't so lucky um you know that was the first you know quote-unquote successful suicide bombing in uganda was in october 2021 which uh where a suicide bomber blew himself up on a bus outside of kampala he only killed himself but you know it was the first successful one outside of congo and then the next month in november that's when you know ADF did three simultaneous suicide bombings in Kampala. Um, and that's sort of what started or gave the impetus for that aforementioned military operation against the ADF in Congo um, that Uganda is conducting alongside the Congolese. Um, it's all because of those suicide bombings, um, which, I mean, they're not done. I mean, Uganda has 
gone on record. They've reported they've thwarted other major attacks by the ADF or major plots. So this is, this is continuing, um, and it's largely in part thanks to the, the Islamic State. Um, and you know, one sad reminder that the Islamic State's reach, you know, goes this deep into the heart of Africa, is that massacre last month. Of that's also just a reflection of that money being moved in to you know the ADS coffers and the rising capacity and capabilities and you know ability to now restart sort of that cross-border insurgency that they've historically done. And that's super worrying uh, and probably won't get the time of day that it, it should get in this field. Um, Uganda has definitely been overlooked in the jihadi, you know, jihadi, you know, ge- geodology sphere, whatever you want to call it. Shout out to Aaron Zellin. Um, but yeah, like it, this is, it's, it's, it's worrying. Um, and hopefully people start paying more attention to this group because it is, you know, a rising star for the Islamic State. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Caleb. You know, look, their ability to co-opt the ADF, certainly a major coup for the Islamic State. It gave them access to an area, I think that was really untapped for, for Al-Qaeda. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if AQ was smart, you know, smarter than what they are, they probably should have invested more in these, yeah. these, these African states that aren't, you know, the their bread and butter. I mean, Al-Qaeda has always been in, Kenya and Tanzania since they started. I mean, uh, 1998, the, the embassy bombings in those two countries would not have happened if AQ didn't have a robust network in those countries in the early and mid-90s. And yeah, there was a major, like, major... But they, but they never moved away from the coast. Yeah, yeah they, you know, and, and I think with Shabab's, you know, they focused a lot of effort, and rightfully so, right? I mean, it was a very active, is, obviously still is a very active, and I think they became a little narrow-minded. It, it, was, it was easier to operate in those areas. Um, you know, look, the, the Al-Qaeda tried, you know, Co-opted for a period of time, Shekau and um, Boko Haram, until the Islamic State came along. Um, still has a presence there with Ansaru, right? But um, and you know, one one theory of maybe why they didn't is you know, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, heavily Christian. Like it, it's not, you know, primarily Muslim countries like yeah. these other states. You know, and maybe AQ saw that and it was just like, well, we'll invest a minimal amount of right. resources, recruiters, whatever. But we don't see them as becoming these, you know, sort of hotbeds. Whereas the Islamic State was more like, hell yeah, buddy, let's 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 do it. Well, and it makes sense too. If you think yeah. about it, right? Al Qaeda is dominant in Somalia and Kenya. Well, the Islamic State's gonna go, all right, well, let's try and hit some areas where we see some openings and, and that no, we don't have much competition. You know, one underlooked thing I think that should have been a red flag for the Islamic State moving into this area is, I believe it was 2016, Rwanda busted an Islamic State recruiting cell in Kigali. And those guys were being sent up to Libya. That was 2016. Right. That was before anyone in this field ever heard of ADF. Uh, And now this is just expanded. And that should have been a red flag for the harbinger of what was to come. And Some of the people still don't want to recognize ADF yeah. as being an Islamic state. Yeah, well, don't want to get into that discussion, <laughs> but yeah, it's been frustrating. Absolutely. Well, certainly a lot to, you know, the depressing update from Africa. Uh, Caleb, any any final thoughts? Mine are, you know, look, these are these are three major theaters and, and two of them are going very badly um uganda like fortunately is a heavy hitter in the region in the sense they i think they're serious about the way they're taking the fight to the islamic state it's tough for them that the islamic state has safe haven in areas within the congo but um at least they're able to defend their territory but, right and that might be the saving grace yeah for them comparatively compared to like mali and somalia wherein you know, AQ and IS are, you know, such a dominant player in those countries. Whereas ADF, even though it's the the deadliest group in Congo, there's still, you know, 119 other armed actors right, in right. Congo. Yeah. It's just one of several yeah, they, players. Yeah. Many yeah. Players. They're, they're competing for a lot. And the ADF is at a disadvantage because they are 
in a predominantly Christian society, so they don't have the option to do sort of indigenous stuff that, you know, maybe AQ in Somalia or Mali or, or IS in Somalia or IS in Mali are able to do. Um, so they may be limited in that capacity and that may be the one silver lining there. However, the jihadis are crafty. They're smart. They're, they do have, you know, people who look at strategy, people who, you know, actually sit down and think about ways they can expand, ways they could do, you know, more activity. And I guarantee you there's people in the ADF that are doing exactly that. Of how can we expand in Congo? So TBD. Caleb, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, you know, co-hosting Generation Jihad with me. And thanks everyone for listening. Had a really good time again talking with Caleb about the jihad in Africa. Uh, just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.